0: Well, in the Bible, the word test usually means to prove by trial. In the mind of Christians, to be tested usually means you're going through a hard time. Some kind of difficulty is testing you or testing your faith, we might say. And it is true in Scripture, there are times when God brings about a circumstance or a series of circumstances to test you. Deuteronomy chapter 8 verse 2 says, the Lord led the Israelites into the, wet, into the desert that he might test them and to humble them. And from the New Testament, First Peter chapter 4 verse 12 tells us, well, the, uh, Peter writes to the church actually saying, do not be surprised at the fiery ordeal that has come on you to test you as though something strange were happening. Today, you might even be in a situation where you feel that due to your circumstances, your faith is being tested somehow. I want to go in a bit different direction and ask you this question. Have you ever had an experience where you felt as if the Lord was blessing you and testing you at the same time? Not every test is negative although we perceive it to be, we just sort of have this mindset, it seems, that testing is hard. Testing is difficult. Sure hope we survive and make it through the testing. Have you ever thought that maybe, perhaps, in the blessing, there is testing? Could it be possible that a new and better job is a test? Could it be possible that some kind of unexpected income or a windfall of cash, such as, such as an inheritance, and I know nobody plays the lottery, so we won't play that one out, but perhaps uh, your house sells way above asking price, and suddenly you have cash in your account, could that be a test? Could it be that something positive, something prosperous is testing your faith? Could it be that an encounter with Jesus Christ... Is a test. We're going to see that today. Something good happens, and in this case, uh, faith fails the test. And this happens more than you realize. In the Gospel of John, the very end of chapter four is a a healing of an official's son, and that's a good thing. In the very beginning of chapter five, there's another healing of a man who had been affected by disability for 38 years, and that's a good thing. And what follows in the aftermath, the rest of chapter 5, a whole lot of time, is spent in uh, displaying a conversation or perhaps a summary of conversations that Jesus had with Jewish, Jewish religious leaders, and it's pretty evident there they failed the test of faith. But intriguing that John places two healings back-to-back and then comes this lengthy conversation. So as we go through the Gospel of John, just give some attention to how he lays this out. Because sometimes literary context actually communicates volumes. Two good things happen and the Jews are mad. Mad enough to want to kill Jesus. We're going to read that in a few moments. Well, we'll pick it up in John chapter 5 with the second healing. And this occurs right after Jesus had healed A man who was close to death, and now we've got someone who had been ill for 38 years. Healing is a good thing, but you'll notice in John chapter 5, you're going to see that people with great faith, exemplary people with great faith, failed in their faith because they had faith in the wrong things. My aim this morning is to show you that Jesus himself is the test Of real faith. And the way we'll look at it is is this Jesus tested the faith of the one who was healed. Jesus tested the faith of the Jews who learned of the healing. And then Jesus tests our faith today. So, regarding the man who was healed and his test of faith, I, I, I can give it to you this way Jesus speaks to him a command. We see the question, do you you want to get well? But then in verse 8, this is written in command form. Jesus says, get up, pick up your mat, and and walk. At that very moment, the man is faced with a a, a choice, and and there is no middle ground. He can either believe Jesus or not. He can't believe Jesus a little bit. He's going to believe Jesus and stand up, or he's not going to believe Jesus, and he's going to lay there for who knows How long? And it's not like Jesus said, you know, I I think you might be healed. Why don't you try walking? No, this is a command. Get up, pick up your mat, and walk. Second thing I noticed is that uh, walking with the mat on the Sabbath is a violation of a Jewish law, not a it's not a violation of scripture, but it's a violation of a man made rule. Somebody had made it up and it became part of their tradition, part of their law. Perhaps that's why Jesus gives us or gives it to the man in a package. Get up, pick up your mat, and walk. He doesn't just say you're healed or get up, you can walk now. Get up, pick up your mat. Knowing that this is the Sabbath, it's not like he lost track of the calendar. Pick up your mat and, and walk. With the giving of the command, the man's faith is tested. Will he get up or not? The only way to know if he's healed is to try to stand up. There appears to be enough faith in Jesus to make the attempt to stand up. He did get up and walk. There does not appear to be enough faith to be a follower of Jesus Christ. He liked Jesus as healer. He did not like Jesus as Savior. Certainly did not like Jesus as Lord. Big difference there. Today we describe this as the difference between being a fan of Jesus and being a follower of Jesus. So Jesus is the test of real faith. Let's push this a little bit further and we'll see Jesus test the faith with regard to the Jews. And that's where I want to start Reading, I'll point out again verse 9. At once the man was cured. He picked up his mat and walked. The day on which this took place was a Sabbath. It would be... Um, it would be funny if it weren't so sad. The response of the Jews in verse 12... Who is this fellow who told you to pick it up and walk? And immediately as the uh, scripture unveils itself, uh, you, you, pick, you pick up quickly that they're mad. Instead of who is this fellow who told you, who is this man who told you to pick it up and walk? Let's go find him that more people may be healed. Let's go find him because maybe he's the Messiah. Let's go find them and and just dialogue theologically. How did this happen? Immediately, they get mad. It's it's as if they don't even see the healing. Obviously, they weren't there when it happened, but there's just no regard for the healing. Who's this guy who told you to walk with your mat on the Sabbath? Everybody knows you can't do that. Well, these are intelligent people. They are educated, educated, They have good jobs. They speak fluent three languages. These are smart people, people that you would look up to if you met them and lived in their neighborhood. You wouldn't be thinking they're dumb, and yet they act dumb. This is not stupidity, this is spiritual blindness. They are intelligent, but they are spiritually blind. Intelligence and knowledge are not the same as faith and wisdom. And we're going to see as we go through the conversation that Jesus had with these leaders, no faith in Jesus really means no faith in God. People who cannot see the blessing and are over-consumed by man-made rules are not dumb. They are deceived. And perhaps a few examples from today's world could help you to understand the difference between. Let me just put it this way not every time a person is deceived means he's dumb. In our world today, we'd put it like this people in the cults are not dumb, they are deceived. People in our culture who reject the idea of absolute truth and think that you can just make up your own truth are not dumb. They are deceived. Policymakers who set aside the notion that there are only two genders and that possibly God created two genders are not dumb. They're just deceived. People who think it's okay for followers of Christ to terminate willfully the human life that lives in the womb are not dumb they're deceived spiritual blindness happens all the time it's all around us we are enabled to see our own spiritual blindness as we draw close to Jesus and pay attention to God's word I think everyone here experiences some measure of spiritual blindness and this is why we so passionately call you to relationship with God and a relationship with God's people, and a relationship with God's Word. You need all three of those to see things that you need to see. If you are an avoider of people, for instance, and you like to do what is sometimes called church at home, be careful. You might have moments of spiritual blindness, Where you think you're carrying along fine, but there's really nobody in your life who can speak to you and bring you some challenge and some encouragement to see things perhaps more in alignment with the Word of God. In the book of Hebrews, there are five warnings against falling away. And it's the book of Hebrews that tells us very clearly, in command form again, do not forsake the assembling of the saints. Do not neglect meeting together, in other words. You need God and God's Word and God's people to be in your life so that something like spiritual blindness does not develop in an intense way. What we have in John chapter 5 is legalism. The man was healed and instead of people praising God, there's an over-the-top, over-the-top concern about uh, the made-up rule not found in Scripture that, that which has supposedly been violated. Jesus was testing their faith. To to whom do you believe now? Where is your faith placed? Where are you going to go with this? The reason this will test their faith is that the religious leaders instantly had something that they had to choose. Either they receive Jesus as Messiah or they reject him as a false Messiah. There is no middle ground. Either they admit that their understanding of of, uh, law and, and, and tradition is wrong or they are right. There really is no middle ground. It could have been known to them, it should have been known to them that Isaiah, Isaiah chapter 35 speaks of miraculous healing and it's evidence of the Messiah being uh, uh, on, on the scene. So Jesus gives them tangible evidence to encourage belief, but belief in Jesus means they will have to drop their long-held legalistic beliefs and they hold those too dearly. Think about this. And I'm pressing on this, but sometimes I save application for the very end. Here's the two minutes of application. I'm just putting this, springing this in in the middle of, of the message throughout. Think about this. When was the last time you learned something new in your faith relationship with God through the person of Jesus Christ? When was the last time you learned something new about your faith? Can Jesus show you anything new? Or do you know it all already? When was the last time you were surprised at the grace of God, the beauty of God, and the goodness of God? A few years back, I took the perspectives course on world missions, and I was totally surprised that God's heart for the nations is everywhere in Scripture. I hadn't seen it before. I'd read the scripture before, just read right over it. So a little bit of spiritual blindness, as if I was approaching God to somehow help me in my world. Oh, there's other people out there. All over scripture, 75 times in the book of Psalms, there's some mention of nations or peoples or the world. It's everywhere in scripture, God's heart for the nations. That has really impacted me. Is there anything that you've learned recently in your faith that you didn't know before? And it was more than information. It actually resulted in transformation. Well, the testing of faith, we're going to find out, centers around the identity of Jesus and his equality with God. What we're going to see in this this next section that I'll read through, um, not in its entirety, but faith in God is faith in Jesus. And Jesus gives uh, these people five dimensions of his equality with God. I want to point those out. Starting with verse 17. Jesus said to them, my father is always at work to this very day, and I too am working. For this reason, the Jews tried all the harder to kill him. Not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. There are some who to this day strongly suggest that Jesus never claimed to be God that he never claimed to be the son of God. We won't have it in those specific words so that we can understand it. But you know what? Jesus claimed it and he said it and he stated it in a way that the people of, of the ancient world could understand it very clearly because they're going to respond and double down. They want to get rid of him. They know what he's talking about. So when Jesus defends himself by saying the father is working, I too am working, he's talking about the ability to do work on the Sabbath forbidden for people to do. It's in the buried in the Ten Commandments. You cannot work on the Sabbath. Jesus says, my Father is working, meaning God, and I too am working, meaning I'm equal with God. The same rules that apply to God the Father in terms of the Sabbath, he's not bound by Jewish legislation. It also applies to, Ju- to Jesus. He is free from the Jewish made-up traditional laws. He can work all he wants on the Sabbath. Look at what the Father does. He works on the Sabbath. Jesus works on the Sabbath. Equality with God. God is always at work even on the Sabbath, and so Jesus is always at work even on the Sabbath. God is not bound by the made-up rules, and neither is Jesus. Equality with God. Now, this, the conversation that follows, Jesus does not uh, debate the merit of their argument. Just so you know, they are wrong in two ways. The prohibition of the work on Sabbath is a prohibition against work that is normally done on the other six days of the week. Things like farming and traveling and hunting and building a house. Those things you were not to do on the Sabbath. Trust God that there would be plenty of time for you to do it otherwise. Trust, trust God that there would be plenty of provision. You don't need to go hunt. You don't need to do more farming. You don't need to harvest God will take care of you. That was the idea. The, uh, the circumstance of somebody who was uh, affected by disability for 38 years and, and suddenly was healed and picked up his mat and walked home, that is never addressed in Scripture. Nor is that the meaning or the intention of the Sabbath. But we'll, we'll, we'll read this. Jesus doesn't go there. Uh, he chooses to present himself as equal to God. He chooses to do this on the Sabbath, He chooses to put himself in hot water. He chooses to test their faith. Where is your faith? My father works on the Sabbath, and Jesus said, I work on the Sabbath. We're in this together. In response to this truth, the Jews wanted to kill him. It was bad enough to work on the Sabbath. It was even worse to make yourself equal to God. Okay, let's get rid of him. Here's something that's important and it's easy to miss as uh, we read through John 5. More important than the response, more important, I said that too fast, more important than the response of the Jews is the response of Jesus. He's standing right there and he heard what they said. Jesus had a chance to correct them. If somehow these leaders are wrong about understanding an apparent claim to be equal with God, Jesus could going to fix that right there. Oh, <laughs> you guys, you, you misunderstand what I'm talking about. He doesn't, he doesn't fix that. He doesn't correct it. In fact, he doubles down and goes even further. It's as if Jesus said, you heard me correctly. I am claiming to be equal with God. What are you going to do with that? continues to explain his equality with God uh, by going through a few more. Verse 19, uh, you'll notice Jesus is equal to God in his position. Verse 19, Jesus gave them this answer, I tell you the truth, the son can do nothing by himself. He can only do what he sees his father doing, because whatever the father does, the son also does. It is, in other words, it's impossible for the son to take independent action that would put him at odds with the father. Everything the son does, he only does because the father is doing in, in some fashion or form. Albeit the son of God is on earth, the father is in heaven. The son will only do what he sees the father's father doing. Restoring life to people, the son will restore life. All that the son does is of the same heart and mind as that of the father they are equally God. Let's take a third one. Jesus is equal to God in power, especially life-giving power. That brings us down to verse 21. For just as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, even so the Son gives life to whom he is pleased to give it. Boy, that's quite a claim. Jump down now to verse 25, we'll see even more of this. Verse 25, I tell you the truth, a time is coming and has now come, meaning Jesus is on the scene. A time is coming and has now come when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. Do you recall there's three healings in Scripture and all Jesus had to do was say it? We, we, we're most familiar with, well, we'll get to it, John 11. Jesus said, Lazarus, come out. The power of his voice. The dead hear. Lazarus was dead four days. The dead, he as a dead person, heard the voice of Jesus and responded. Verse 26 For as the Father has life in himself, so he has granted the Son to have life in himself. Jesus is showing us, uh, I've used that phrase often in here, Jesus did things that only God can do, Jesus said things that only God can say, and in in, in working out miraculous signs such as this, Jesus is showing us what the kingdom of God looks like in full form. So for instance, at the end of the age, we'll see the kingdom of God in, in full form. Jesus casts out some demonic here, Sometimes he cast out demons. Why? Because there will be no demonic activity. There will be no demons in the age to come. Jesus healed some sick. Not every person who was sick, but he did heal some sick. Why? Because there will be no sickness in the age to come. No disability in the age to come. Jesus raised three people from the dead in Scripture that we know of recorded in Scripture. He didn't raise everybody, but he raised three. Why? Because in the age to come, there will be no death. So Jesus is giving us pictures of what is to come. Jesus is equal to God in his um, in his work. Jesus is equal to God in his position. Jesus is equal to God in life, or excuse me, life giving power. And here's another one: Jesus is equal to God in honor. Aha, verse twenty three, B. That would be the last part, the full sentence of verse 23. He who does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. I know I've said this before, but it's worth saying again. Islam and Judaism are monotheistic. They believe in one God. They do not believe in the God of the Bible. Here is where they depart right here. To not say that Jesus is the Son of God, to reject Jesus as the Messiah, our Savior the Son of God, is to reject God. Equal honor goes to them both. You receive Jesus, you receive the Father. You reject Jesus, you reject the Father. Jesus makes this very clear. Please do not be confused, do not be deceived. If you want, I would love to have a conversation with you about this. Here's a fourth, or uh, the last one, was, is uh, Jesus is equal to God in judgment. Now, giving it to them this way, he's just completely uh, dismantling every argument, every, every last ounce of confusion that they might have had. Did he say what we think he said? <laughs> yeah. He's making it abundantly clear. Not only do you want to kill me for the, because you think I claim to be God, let me make sure that we all understand this. Jesus claimed to be God. He's making it so clear. Jesus is equal to God in judgment. Verse 22 moreover the father judges no one but has entrusted all judgment to the son to say that the father judged, has judged no one but entrusted all judgment to his son is a very clear way of claiming to be god in fact that, that's all he would need to say just 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 stick with that little phrase that would have been enough but he makes it very abundantly clear that he's claiming to be god now, just to make sure you don't get tripped up by something that occurs later on in this passage, I want to direct your attention to verse 25. Excuse me, verse 27. I had it in my mind, 25, we just read that. Verse 27, following forward. And, and God has given Jesus authority to judge because he is the son of man. Do not be amazed at this for a time is coming when all in their graves will hear his voice and come out. Here's the confusing part. Those who have done good will rise to live, and those who have done evil will rise to be condemned. Doesn't that sound like you're being judged based on what you do and not who you believe? boy it just sounds like there's going to be an evaluation and you, you, you better have enough good stuff to your merit to your account or else you're going to be missing out well no that can't be because the bible clearly teaches we are saved by grace alone through faith alone in christ alone so what what could this be and it's from jesus no less Okay, have you ever heard the phrase, someone knows enough to be dangerous? If, if all you knew was verse 29, and you were knocking at someone's door, and you wanted to show them, hey, I, I got a faith, and I want you to belong and join our club, and, and you got to do a whole bunch of things, you, you might want to just pick out only chapter 5, verse 29. Okay, now have you heard another thing from either me or Pastor Aaron, Pastor Chris, Rich, or or anybody else up here? Something about context? Yeah, you need to read the words around a particular Bible verse. Every verse has a context. Usually it's a paragraph or a chapter. Every chapter has has a context. It could be several chapters. It could be the whole book. Every book has a context. It's a big overflow of the Bible. We know just looking at the big theme of the Bible, Jesus is the hero of the story. People could not save themselves. God had to get involved and send Jesus to to come here to save people from their sins. But we can also deal with this just by looking at John chapter 5, the words of Jesus. Let's go to verse 24. You you have to assume now Jesus is intelligent enough and wise enough that he's not going to contradict himself. Verse 24. I tell you the truth. It's almost like a solemn declaration here. Whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life and will not be condemned. He has crossed over from death to life. Wow, that's even more clear. The other one was a little bit muddy. This one is extremely clear. When in doubt, go with the clarity, always, Interpret that which is confusing or mildly confusing to you with what is clear or most clear. So Jesus makes it, I think, abundantly clear. Here's my word and believes. Nothing in there about doing a whole bunch of good things. And, and notice the present possession of, of eternal life has eternal life, not will receive, has eternal life and will not be condemned. He has. He owns this now. He has crossed over from death to life. Okay, so what about that, that little ditty up here in verse 29 where I said it's a it, it might be a tad confusing? Do you remember in John 3, we were talking about Jesus having a conversation with Nicodemus? And probably the most famous part of that is John 3:16, uh, believe in the Son of God. But you know what? The second most famous part of that is John. Well, it says it three times, verse 3, verse 6, and then another one. Um, You must be born again. So, following forward in John's gospel, where he introduces this concept of being born, and actually he goes back to John chapter 1 of being born, but born again. Following forward, just born-again people. Keep an eye on born-again people. People who follow Jesus live differently. I think what Jesus is talking about here in verse 29 is that born-again people evidence the fact that they are born again. They live differently. And so you can just examine the way they live and you can recognize that person there, that's a Christian, that person there, that's a follower of Jesus Christ, that person there knows Jesus. In the book of Acts chapter 11 verse 26, the disciples who normally were just called followers of the way, the disciples were first called Christians at Antioch. Why were they called Christians? Because they looked like they were followers of Christ. That's what you called people. Herodians followed Herod. Christians follow Christ. Verse 29, the intention is, if you know Jesus and you have belief in him and you've crossed over to eternal life, there's gonna be evidence of that. You, you are born again person, You have a new life. Live your new life. Okay, so Jesus is equal to God in judgment. Here's some very simple logic. God judges people. Jesus judges people. Jesus is God. Right there, with just that one nugget of truth, you can disarm the Jehovah's Witness who comes to your door. You can have a a reasonable discussion with someone who's immersed in Islam and maybe you don't know all the answers, but you know you can stand strong because you you know what reality is as revealed in Scripture. You can talk to a Jew and help them to understand where you two are different. You can do that. One more layer here on judgment. All judgment relates to to the Son of God. All judgment goes back to Jesus. It's Jesus and how people relate to him that is the only basis of how people will be judged. And in that way, all judgment goes to Jesus every single time. How people respond to Jesus is their judgment. Now this is actually connected to the healing that was read earlier. And I will suggest to you that the healed man was not saved. Let's look at verse 14 again. Later, Jesus found him at the temple and said to him, See, you are well again. Stop sinning or something worse may happen to you. We know from John chapter 9, and we're not there yet, but we'll spend some time on that, that the man is not ill because he sinned. This is not a warning that he will incur some kind of a greater disability if he lives life as a sinner or in rejection of Jesus Christ. There are things that are worse than being faced with disability for a lifetime. There are things that are worse than dying young. There are things that are worse than those things. And that would be a rejection of Jesus Christ where you would have an eternity to be outside of his grace and incur his wrath. There's something that Jesus does not say to this man when he is healed that he said eight times in the Gospels. Go, your faith has made you well. Or some form of that, eight times, eight different times in the Gospels. Jesus does not say to this man, your faith has made you well. I don't think the man had saving faith. He had just enough faith to receive a blessing from Jesus who has come to heal people in part, but not enough faith to receive salvation from Jesus. And so there's this warning, stop sinning, get right with God, or there is something worse in your future. Jesus fixed the man, but the man had an even greater need than physical healing. This man needed to know Jesus as Savior and not just Jesus as healer. Okay, let's move forward to today. You might think, well, I, I don't have any chance to have an encounter with Jesus Christ, and so I maybe I'm off the hook a little bit at least, huh? I, I, I'm not going to have a conversation with Jesus in a, in a one-on-one situation. I'm not going to see somebody who's been healed like this guy 38 years and, and, and be in the aftermath of a conversation like that. Well, watch the rebuke that Jesus gives to these people. And it turns out there is something that we do have. And we even have even more than they did. Let's take a look. John chapter 5, verse 39. You diligently study the scriptures because you think That by them you possess eternal life. These are the scriptures that testify about me, and yet you refuse to come to me to have life. The best way to meet Jesus Christ is in the word of God. That's why we so faithfully proclaim to you God's word. Sunday after Sunday, there's somebody up here who opens up the Bible, turns the pages of the Bible, reads the words of the Bible, teaches you about those words in the Bible. That's why we have Bible studies. That's why we support missionaries who go to far off places and teach people the Bible in a language that they can understand. The best way to meet Jesus Christ is the Word of God. The missionary that introduced me to Jesus is the Word of God. Now, it's to my discredit that I didn't have people in my life, but the missionary that led me to Jesus is clearly the Word of God. When Jesus gives this rebuke to these people, he's rebuking them for not paying attention to the very thing that we have. And we have this in abundance. And we even have more than they have the written Word of God. It is clear from this conversation that Jesus did not come to make friends. He came to test faith. As you encounter Jesus in the word of God, just simply recognize this. Your faith is being tested. Will you move from a fan of Jesus to a fully devoted follower of Jesus Christ? You will never regret that transformation. Let's pray. Dear God, we are grateful that John 5 in its entirety is in the Word of God. So glad to hear of the man being healed and to know that you have that capability. Sometimes we see healings in this life, but we do look ahead to that time when there will no longer be a need for healing of any sort. But we also learn from that heated conversation that Jesus had with those who resisted and rejected him. We are asking you this morning, our great and glorious God, to remove every last vestige of resistance that we have to jesus we want it all to go yielded to you ready to do your will wanting and eager to pursue you jesus christ we proudly proclaim you're the savior that God the Father has sent into this world and the Holy Spirit helps us to recognize that. But we also proclaim, you are the Lord. You are highly exalted and the only one to whom we must give an account. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.